Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar. I'm sure you heard that in the intro, though, right? So if you are new to the show, thanks for being here. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for giving us just a little bit of your time to hear what we're all about here. If you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. Thanks for sharing the show. Thanks for being part of what makes the show fun and awesome. Now, if you've been following any of the past few episodes that we've put out, past interviews with experts in the field, you'll see and you will have noticed that much of the innovation and much of the topic material that we've been covering has really centered around technology. So we had somebody talking about artificial intelligence and video and how using a technology platform like that can help improve clinical outcomes. We've had multiple folks on the show talking about telehealth, different ways to implement it, either from a biomedical or like more of a physical dysfunction realm or frame of reference, all the way to mental health and emotional well-being and how clinicians can leverage telehealth in those settings as well, group therapy, group treatments. And then we've also talked about virtual health, asynchronous health, if you would, and how we can leverage technology to increase and improve communication, access, quality, all of that kind of stuff. But it's all focused around technology. However, when we talk about and we think about ways that we can innovate in healthcare or ways that we can try something new, so to speak, sometimes it means going back to um, something more simple, right? More A more simple setting, a more simple context. So my guest this week is Laura Park Figueroa. She's an occupational therapist and she runs a nature-based practice in pediatrics. So her clientele are all children that might be either experiencing some sort of emotional, behavioral, or developmental limitation or issue And she leverages nature, the context of nature, to improve outcomes for her clients. So we talk a lot about the research, the evidence, the literature that supports using nature as a medium for healthcare delivery, kind of the way to structure, the way we should think about how we use nature and nature-based activities within the context of treatment, And then we also talk about her uh, proprietary approach. She's developed an approach called the Contigo approach that's all about connection, transformation, and obviously being in the outdoors, in the great outdoors. She's also the host of the Mind Your OT business podcast. And we talk a little bit about that show as well. So if you have thought about nature-based therapy, or if you've heard about it, you really haven't experienced it and you'd want to know more, this episode will hopefully provide a good amount of insight, both from a practical level, this is how you structure, or this is how you should think about structuring treatments that are based in nature, all the way through to the theoretical and the evidence in the literature. It's a little bit on the long side, however, I think it's definitely worth it. So without further ado, here's Laura Park Figueroa talking about nature-based therapy. Hey, Laura, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Rafi. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Um, For those who might not know you in the greater healthcare space, um, who are you and what do you do? Uh, My name is Laura Park Figueroa. I am an occupational therapist and... I do a lot of things. So the the primary thing we're going to talk about today is I run a nature-based occupational therapy practice for children in the Bay Area of California. It's called Outdoor Kids OT. 
And I started that five years ago now, and we've grown a treatment approach out of that that is a nature-based therapy approach for children, not just for OTs, but it can be used in any healthcare profession. And along with that, I got really interested in researching this further. So I'm working on a PhD right now at Texas Women's University um, to study nature-based therapy for children. And I'm going to be starting my dissertation probably next year. So um, it's really, yeah, it's really exciting. I I feel like a lot of people are like, how are you doing all of this? And I think it, it just feeds you know, the research feeds my love for what we do. It feeds creating a model that will work that's based on evidence um, and and what the research says about the best way to provide nature-based therapy for children. Uh, And the work in my practice just is a way to work that out, right? To like actually Yeah, you're like live demoing it, so to speak. Yeah, right, right, right. And then I also, I, I have a some people may know me because I have a podcast called Mind Your OT Business. So I work with OT entrepreneurs and nature-based practitioners to help them with the business side of their of their work because that's my other passion. So I love nature-based therapy and I love entrepreneurship. Those are my two like things I do in my work right now that just really light me up. So yes. And the podcast is good. Go to episode. I can't remember which one I was on, but go to that one. It's a good one. <laughs> oh yeah. I think it was, oh, I can't remember either. Early, I could yeah. look it up before the end. It, it's probably like somewhere between 10 and 13, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so let's talk a little bit about nature-based therapy then. So Let's talk about that and then we'll kind of dive into some of the research because now that you're doing yeah. that, I kind of want to hit that. So what is, when we say nature-based therapy or nature-based treatment, what is it? Well, it means a lot of different things to different therapists. So I think- And different clinicians, right? Like different disciplines yeah, abs- might look at it differently? Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. So for me, um, what in my practice- the way I look at nature-based therapy is if you are using nature, and I, I don't even like to say using nature really, it's, it's better to say partnering with nature. Um, co- nature. Yeah, co-facilitating a, a therapy session with nature. Those are the, the kind of language I like to use around it because really that's, that's part of our model at Outdoor Kids OT. The way I look at it is, is you are in partnership with nature for the benefit of that child or of your client. So you're, you're looking at nature, partnering with nature as, as co-facilitator of your therapy session to augment progress towards goals. And I could go into a million ways that nature does that, but really looking at nature as the ideal space to work on therapy goals because of the the many benefits that we that we all receive as humans from being in nature especially in yeah, a world where we're so emotional wise yes that. absolutely there's there's so much research around mental health for children motor skills social skills um, their motivation to play and explore I, you're going to hear me talk a lot about children some of this does apply to adults yeah. too um, but but the research is really clear on that and and it just kind of you know several years ago hit me that like gosh, it's such a perfect partnership. The stuff we work on in OT, it's such a perfect partnership to do it in partnership with nature because of all the benefits nature offers. So that's how I define it. Um, but I, I realized very quickly that different professionals, um, even OTs, define it differently because you have a whole, and even in the literature, we see this saying it's very difficult to define what nature-based means. Yeah, it's kind of a big blanket term. But, Every kind, Everything that you do yes. outside gets thrown into... Right. Nature-based therapy, like beekeeping. Yeah. Yeah. So people, people, um, you know, there might, people might call nature-based therapy, like therapy that is like adventure therapy where you're kayaking or you're mountaineering, you know, there's a lot of research on veterans and adventure therapy going out into nature for mental health and treatment of PTSD. So there's that kind of leg, right? Then there's animal assisted therapy, like hippotherapy or like canine using dogs in therapy. And some people see that as nature because animals are part of our- They're natural. yeah, uh, (laughs) Yeah. They're part of our world, right? They're other living beings. Um, and that, that kind of relates to, um, I might kind of sprinkle in the research because as things come up, I think I'm going to, re- I'm going to remember research or theories that, yeah. that may apply, right? So, um, the biophilia hypothesis, which was, um, proposed by 
E.O. Wilson, I think in the 80s it was. This is good practice for my, for my for exams in the fall over. when I'm going to be tested <laughs> on all this. <laughs> um, I have to remember all the research in my head, right? But um, he, he came up with this idea of the biophilia hypothesis, which is essentially that living beings have an innate desire to connect with nature with other living beings, with plants, animals, in the natural world, to kind of explain that, that idea that we evolved in nature. Yeah. Like our human selves evolved in close connection with nature. And um, so I could see where animal-assisted therapy could Kinda be part of that, that, right? But for me, like when I, when I talk about nature-based therapy, I'm mainly talking about therapy in a setting that is away from the built environment where you're not, so the parks where we do our therapy services are, are relatively uncultivated. They, they kind of feel like wild spaces. Not a spaces. lot of paved paths. And anything. Yeah, yeah, like not a manicured urban park. Uh-huh. Not that you couldn't do outdoor therapy there, right? And call it nature-based because you can connect to nature in any setting. I think there's value in the nature in our own backyards, you know, exactly, in the, yeah. the pavement in an urban neighborhood where some random beautiful flower crops up and how resilient is that you can notice that nature in daily life right but but when i speak about nature-based therapy in my practice i'm talking about the the setting and the partnership with nature so we're in wilder nature uh-huh. wild nearby nature you know we don't want to we're not talking about out not in driving the mountains. two hours right <laughs> yeah 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 we want it to be accessible as accessible as possible to families so we're talking about you know nature that's within 20 minutes probably of the family's homes that we serve um, but that feels relatively wild um, when you're there so. yeah well and that brings up all kinds of questions so like you're ju- you're doing these in parks or these national parks or or like my brain is thinking like, okay, you're doing it in a park. So what kind of liability is there? What, like, do you have to pull licenses? All of that. Yeah. Yeah. So we pull permit. I mean, we have permits with the parks to use the parks if required. Some, some parks don't require it. You know, if you're, if you're a a small group under a certain size, you have to just look at your area Uh and find out, do the digging on the websites to find out um, what they require in your area. So relatively, usually most parks that are regional or local parks, that's mostly what we use. We don't have a Uh national, there might be one national park that's drivable, but it would probably be like 45 minutes from me, but we don't, we don't offer services there. Um, But, but I would look into regional and local parks because the fees tend to be lower to have a permit or sometimes free. They don't require you if you're not using, yeah, if you're not using like a specific site then you're allowed to use the park as a community space, you know? So okay. it's community-based therapy, essentially. You're using a community space to offer the, the therapy service. Awesome. So then what kind of, I guess, let's talk specifically about your area of expertise, which is kids and all that. So what kind of diagnoses or areas are you addressing in your treatments? Yeah, so I learned really quickly. This is a great question because I hope that this will save some of your listeners time if they are interested <laughs> in in doing this. Because when I first started out, I think I I I had this hilarious vision that children would like happily write in a nature journal at the end of every session what they had learned. <laughs> and you know, it was just gonna be so idyllic and perfect. And and really with kids, like when they're in nature, they don't want to sit down and reflect and write in a journal the way an adult would, right? It's yes. all about play. Uh-huh. And, and that's what I love about getting kids out in nature is they just so naturally become like in their element, you know, they just play. <laughs> so there is some structure to our sessions. We uh-huh. don't just let them run wild. But, um, but basically what I learned right away was I, there, there are certain things that are really great to work on in a nature setting with children specifically. So um, we, our kind of tagline in my practice is we help kids become more coordinated, confident, calm, and caring. Oh, I like that alliteration. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had like seven C's at the beginning. That was too many for a tagline. But, but um, basically we, we kind of came up with that from the idea that those are the things that we feel like nature really helps children with. So coordination is their motor skills. Really, it's a lot of gross motor. If you think Uh about how these kids, so PTs, I'm looking at you, you should be doing workout in nature. It is amazing for balance. Yeah, different terrain, all kinds of stuff. They're moving the whole time. I mean, I, I, a future study I want to do is actually like putting the 
I don't even know what they're called. PTs would probably know like pedometers or accelerometers, something, something that would measure how much movement children were actually doing during a session, uh-huh. you know, do it in an indoor setting and do it in, in do a nature-based setting outdoors, yeah. and compare. It would be so interesting because they move so much in, in our sessions. Um, and, and the fine motor too, you know, they find a flower that they want to look at or a bug and they have to be very gentle and careful with it. It's the, these experiences to work on motor skills just happen so naturally. Um, so that's coordination. Uh, coordinated confident is really looking at their mental health, essentially. Uh-huh. That's our parent friendly word for mental health. Like we want kids to feel like they can Um, express themselves like they have value in the world they have an opinion and they want to share it with the group Um, that they can take risks and do things that are a little bit challenging for them and that it's that it's safe to do that you know in the context of yeah allowing them to have Um, some sort of like self-mastery over a challenging experience or something like that yeah I mean that does go I I love OA theory occupational adaptation theory and there's that concept of relative mastery like a child Uh becoming more um, effective, efficient, and satisfied with how they're doing something. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of that confidence piece, right? It, it, um, to tie it into theory a little bit. But So it's coordinated, confident. Calm is referring to self-regulation. So that sensory aspect of how nature is a multi-sensory environment that is also at the same time really calming for children. Like there's something about being in nature where our eyes are using distance vision rather than that uh-huh. up close screen <laughs> that yeah. they're on so much, right? The blue light. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there is some there is some research. Most of it is I think there's a really big study out of China, I think it was, um, that the more children spend time outdoors, the less incidence they have of myopia. So oh, okay. so using that distance vision is so important to kind of balance out the the screen time that all kids are are more exposed to nowadays. So that self-regulation piece, I mean we do we, we explicitly work on that in our groups, like helping kids learn to self-regulate. But that, that calm word also refers to how nature is such an optimal place to work on sensory processing and integration for kids. Uh-huh. Um, and then caring is social skills. That's like working with children on how to get along with others, how to, you know, the confidence to have, make friends and play games and take turns and do all those fun things we do when we're out in a group with our friends in the woods. So those are yeah. kind of the areas we work on. I don't know if I answered your question about diagnoses. Do you want me to go into that too? Well, no, I mean, like the types what, of kids. Yeah. Kind of what you're, what you're, what you just described kind of sounds like it, it not that it's good for everybody, but you know, right. it's not like you're taking a group of, let's say people with autism or just a group of kids with cerebral palsy. Like there's really the ability to mix and match and anybody that can make it to this. Yeah you know, this park on this day can go, go to a group and so get something out of it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really those four areas. I think it allows us to kind of mix our groups and know that we can work on any of those areas. And ideally the groups have a mix of all those needs. Uh-huh. Like, and that's not always, that doesn't always ideally happen. Like we've had groups, some groups, it really works out and other groups, it's harder because the mix of needs is not as ideal, but ideally you have like, you know, maybe one kid who struggles with motor skills, but there's another kid who struggles with social skills and there's another kid who might have some confidence issues. And there's another kid who might have some sensory issues and you mix them all together and then they're modeling for each other. Exactly, they're, they're, yeah. they're able to kind of encourage one another and, and see that everybody's unique and different. And so it, you know, ideally you have a mix of those, but, we, we, we market our services to um, families with children who have autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, or, men- or motor coordination issues, and um, I, not so much mental health. I, I've had a hard time not, because I'm not, I'm because not so... Because of the so, stigma there, or the, like the language so, around how you would do it, or... Yeah, maybe the maybe the language on how we would do it, but I also feel like that's the that's a very specialty area too. Uh-huh. That I feel like I would want to make sure our therapist had training in how okay. to specifically, you know, if we're going to market to children with mental health diagnoses, um, I want to make sure that we are serving them well and and using evidence based practice. Now that doesn't mean that some kids that come to us don't have anxiety or, yeah. or diagnosed. Um, 
diagnosed mental health concerns, but we're not marketing specifically, specifically to those to people quite yet. And it's something I'm really interested in doing. It's just my wheels are starting to turn about how, how do, what does that look like and, and how do we do it well in the business? Yeah. So. Well, and I think, you know, just as somebody who is in and out of mental health, practicing and consulting, like the idea of, of mental health, it is very broad because obviously it touches everything and you do have people that offer things as mental health services and you end up looking at them and you're like, oh, that might not be exactly what the like best practice according to the literature. So yeah. the idea of making sure that you're rock solid on your evidence before you move into yeah, that area. Yeah. Yeah. I think the evidence is totally there for nature-based practice for mental health needs with children and adolescents, both. Yeah. I um, there's, sure. there's several good systematic reviews that, that have, um, that have talked about that recently, but I just, I just want to make sure that we are providing really great services for those kids. You know, uh -huh. if we're going to specifically, my brain goes to like trauma, you know, and I want to make sure yes. that, that if that is a piece, and I know that a lot of kids we, we already serve probably have had trauma in their backgrounds because we know the incidence of, of trauma is very high among a lot of children, right? Like all of us have had exactly. it um, in different ways in our lives, but yeah, so it's just something I think to think about in the future and maybe work with my team on is this is this an element that we really want to layer in and how do we how do we serve um, that that particular population really well? So okay, yeah, yeah. So we kind of talked a little bit about the uh, what it, the the diagnoses you may see that the things you're working on. Mm -hmm. Are you doing structured tasks? And if so, like, how does that work? Are you doing things over terrain to work specifically on gross motor? Or are you trying to facilitate sort of like a, just an experience of being in nature that ends up with therapeutic outcomes? Yeah. So I would say that when I first started out, I tried to be more structured. Uh -huh. um, and, and also had some experiences when I first started out where being unstructured did not work as well. So I started out um, running really large camps through a national organization, an international organization, really. It's kind of like a franchise. Okay. Um, and what part of the reason that I moved to a more therapeutic, smaller group model um, for my practice is because of the experiences that some children had at at the larger group camp, which was a relatively unstructured curriculum, you know, like uh -huh. a lot of it was unstructured free play, which is so, so beneficial for children. And I love, I love that for most children. There were certain children who really did not thrive in that environment because they did not have the structure they needed to, or the skills that they needed to know how to play. Even, yeah. 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 So this, this approach really grew out of seeing the needs of particular children that had these types of developmental challenges. And we now have in our small groups and we run a summer camp too, that is limited to 10 kids and two therapists. So it's still a small oh, group, essentially small, it's yeah. one therapist to five kids, right? So our small groups where we offer therapy services are always five or sometimes six kids with a therapist and one or two assistants who are usually um, OT, pre-OT students that need their volunteer hours, right? Uh -huh. um, so it's a really small group. And what, what we've come to that works really well is a mix of a structured therapy activity plan for the day that is still created to be novel, very fun and engaging for children. But we're we're specifically targeting their goals with that therapy activity. So we plan the therapy activity based on the needs of the kids in the group. Um, and then there is a, a large portion of our session that is, we call it supported free play time. So we don't call it just free play because the word supported means that we understand that these children may need, they need some, some support yeah. <laughs> from us during free play time. And what that looks like is us, the, the therapist and the volunteers or other staff noticing, you know, just being aware of when kids are playing and they can stand back and not be, we might not be in the mix playing the game with the kids, whatever they're doing, building a fort or climbing a tree or 
playing chase, whatever they're, whatever they're doing, right? That's their own chosen activity. So we won't get in the mix with them unless they want us to. But what it does mean is we're, we're specifically looking during the free play time for ways to support the children's goals. Yeah. So we know what the, what each individual kid in that group needs to work on. And when we see a potential conflict situation starting with that kiddo that we know has a really hard time navigating conflict with peers, we can get closer. We can give a script, a verbal script for them to use. We can stand nearby and give support as needed. We can ask questions to help them process the conversation going on, whatever, whatever it looks like to support that child. Uh So it's kind of like setting the guardrails and letting them kind of figure it out. Yeah. It's like, and we always put it back. We always want the kids to be problem solving. We use a lot of, it's called inquiry based learning and like forest school education, Uh like outdoor, outdoor education principles, essentially you're, you're wanting the children to come to their own understanding about things rather than you telling them. Um, yeah, you want them to develop the skills. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So you're asking questions to help them problem solve, to help them think through things, rather than giving them the answers all the time. So, so our session, you know, long story short or long story long, which is usually <laughs> the case with me, <laughs> like our sessions are a mix of a structured time so that the kids have a really clear, um, a clear structure throughout the day, so they feel comforted by that. They know what to expect every week, but then there's also a significant time that we do free play. And our sessions are long. We, I actually really recommend this to people. This is another tip if people are interested in this. Don't do just a 45 minute or one hour session outside. You need time. Yeah. So you need time to walk to where you're gonna play. You need time to, to let the structured therapy activity happen. You need time to give them free play time. So we do our, our sessions are an hour and 45 minutes long for our groups. Some of them are two hours. So oh, wow, the Saturday yeah. groups are two hours because there's less of them per year. So we're trying to get the same number of minutes, but in less uh-huh. weeks. So um, yeah, when I imagine yeah. something too, like, you know, I've, I've got a, four kids that are five and under and my oldest is very like, he's outgoing and stuff once he gets warmed up, but it takes mm-hmm. him you know, 15, 20 minutes of he'll he'll sit and watch people kind of do their thing before he gets involved. And then once he gets involved, it's like, oh, he's home. You you see what's going on. So (laughs) I see doing like a shorter, like we're going to do a 45 minute thing here. You're you're, some of those kids that, especially if you're working on those social skills, right? They get robbed of that time almost if they need some extra time to process or observe before feeling comfortable. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can we I'm sorry, can we just circle back to bow before you that you have four <laughs> children under the age of five? Well oh now my the, gosh. the oldest just became five this year, so we got five. The, I've got five, three, one, and six months old. Oh my gosh. Yeah, four months old actually. That's yeah. that's amazing. Crazy. You're amazing. Well, well my congrats. Wife is Gosh, brand new baby. <laughs> yes. And your wife is amazing. Let's talk about her being amazing exactly, yeah. too. That is incredible. She gets a trophy I love it. for sure. You just um, mentioned it so casually. Like I have, I have four kids under the age of five. I'm like, hold on, back up, back up, <laughs> bow before you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sorry. You know. On to the interview. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I had a question. Okay. So you, you do these groups and they're two hours long and you're working specifically, you know, the structure time, then the, the sun structure time, but you mentioned goals. So before yeah. a child does a group or participates in a group with you, are you doing some kind of assessment or evaluation or something with, with the child and the parents to kind of come up with, okay, these are the goals for little Sammy or something like that? Yeah. So when I, when I started, okay, I am so laughing that you just used the word Sammy because I wrote an article that's coming out in the AOTA special interest section <laughs> and the case study name is Sam. So- awesome. <laughs> not a not a real name of a client we had it was just a stand-in but still like that was hilarious yeah. <laughs> um, so that's coming out in August so if people want to read about the approach we use and stuff that's going to be in there and you can read about the case study of Sam yeah um yes yeah, so that that is in the article too if people want more info about it but basically part of so the approach that I developed is called the Contigo approach and it stands for connection and transformation in the great outdoors. And it, it part of the, the approach is that we are specifically offering therapy outdoors. So it is not just a unstructured playtime, which is again, awesome for kids. Like a social group or whatever. 
Yeah, it's not it's not just a health and wellness service where we're we're promoting the health and well-being of children because that's great and awesome, but if you are providing what you are marketing as a therapy service, I personally believe that you should be doing some sort of assessment, you should be writing goals, you should be tracking progress and you exactly. should be reporting on progress to families. And so that's a big part of the training I do for therapists in the Contigo approach is walking through like how you can structure this when you do run nature-based sessions. So um, do you, I mean, I can go into what I do in my practice if you feel like it would be helpful to yeah, listen, sure, if sure. you want me to kind of tell them. Um, we use we use primarily online assessments because it's easy for group intake. Like when you're, when you're bringing in a group of five to six children, um, another another tip learned from failure okay or like craziness learned from craziness yeah. in the beginning when i first started i was like okay i'm going to do an in person assessment visit for all kids that come in the group and it is not financially sustainable to do that if you have staff yeah it, it's or or you'd have to be running such a high level you'd have to charge so much for the for the service exactly to, yeah to make it i i don't know it, it was much more efficient for us. And as we went along, um, we realized that we can do some of these assessments online where parents fill out their like a questionnaire um, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The standardized assessment online. So we use the, the sensory processing measure and the Vineland adaptive behavior skills. Um, there are other ones. I'm actually considering some social emotional ones to kind of get into more of that mental, that mental health, health yeah. piece. Um, Cause that's what we work on a lot with kids, but right now that's what we use and that has worked fine. And I check in with my therapist every year to say, Hey, do you guys, you know, are you feeling like these are still good or do we need to consider other assessments? And, um, we'll be having that meeting in a month or two to kind of talk about that, but it has worked well. I mean, we get those back. Um, my practice manager manages those, gets them into the EMR when they come in. And so the therapist can log into the EMR just to see the assessment results. Uh -huh. And then from there, they can kind of see like, is this mix of kids going to be okay? And, and occasionally it does not happen often, but occasionally we have to say like, this might not be a good fit for these kids. And we have to have conversations with parents about restructuring the groups a little bit, like maybe moving a kid to a different group that yeah, might be a better fit. Shuffling the um, groups up, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of how we do it. So we, we, do those, we do those assessments and we do our own intake forms too, of course, like asking very specific questions. But one of the key things is that we really value listening to parents. And this is what I love about private practice. And what I love about what this whole podcast is about, Rafi, which I love the topic of this podcast, is just thinking about how we can create businesses that, that are um, really offering effective services for our clients in ways that are maybe not the traditional exactly. <laughs> like, way. And I, I love private practice because, um, and specifically cash-based private practice, because you really can serve your client. Like, you really can say what is important to you and you don't have to be like, oh, well, the insurance probably won't pay for that or, oh, the school's telling me I can't work on that because it's not educationally relevant, whatever. Exactly. Like, um, so we listen to parents, you know, what parent concerns are and that's kind of how we drive our goals. So we match that to the assessments that come out and kind of decide why might the challenge that the parent is reporting be happening. Um, and then we write a goal or two. I've always said one goal is enough, but my therapists always want to be like, well, let's just write one more. You exactly. know, <laughs> yeah. want to have more than one goal. We learned how to write these but, in um, school. We want to use them. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so a child will have one or two goals and it makes it really, um, it, it makes it really targeted because when you know you have that one goal for that child, like you can, you can keep that in mind, you know, when you're, when you're, even when you're running a group session, if you have five children that each have five goals, there's no way you are going it's overload. to hit all of it. It's total overload. Well, also, and how long are your, like your, your lengths of, um, I guess, lengths of care or plan of care last? Because I imagine you're not seeing them for a year, right? Yeah. Well, we are, sort, oh. most of them. Um, okay. So that's another, that's another thing for your listeners that like thinking about different ways to structure your services, right? So what we found in the early years, we used to run in 10 week sessions. So we would have like one in the fall and then we'd have two 10 week sessions in the spring because the spring is way longer. It's like way longer than September to December. So it was 
a 10 week session in the fall, two 10 week sessions in the spring, like January to March and then March to May or June. Um, what we realized is that the kids started to make the most progress when yeah, the, the groups end. really, well, <laughs> well, like mid year when the groups really gelled, like, like February was when we started to see like, there's a flow, there's a, there's a feeling of comfort in the group. There's a feeling of familiarity between the kids and also with the therapists and the children and the volunteers. Like, so we made the decision, I think the third year that I was in practice, we made the decision as a team to, to transition to a year, a school year model. And, and basically we have um, waivers or, or like, not, not a waiver, a policy that we have families sign that, that says, I understand this is a school year program. And it also communicates our commitment to them to say, if we feel like your child does not need therapy anymore, we will not keep you on therapy. We're not going to be unethical, right? Yeah. So we, we check in in um, December and March. So we, we write a progress note in December and June. But basically, parents, parents can even opt out a couple of times throughout the year. So we don't make it like you're locked in for the whole year. If you, yeah, you're not you know. signing a contract for a year. But yeah. yeah. The program but we do, is available we, for that long. Yeah. And we do, we do charge a cancellation fee if families choose to opt out mid-year it's it's nominal it's like a hundred bucks i think or something basically just because we have to then fill that spot and there's administrative work behind that right but um this model i i really feel so strongly that when switching to this year-long format where it's a school year program it has it has increased happiness of our clients because our parents are bought in you know they are they are present and bought in for the school year. They know that this is a commitment they've made for the school year. The families have, have bonded more like the, the relationships between parents when you're getting because it's stable. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting way to think about like structuring a, a service for children, you know, to say that, we're going we're gonna to be in this for a year, for nine months, whatever, whatever it is, once we start in September and end in late May or early June, um, and that we're committed to your family for that time. And that we, of course, will, will tell you if, if we feel like your child doesn't need therapy anymore. And that, oh, that's something I didn't say. So part of, part of the Contigo approach is that we have um, peer playmates in the group who are, are not receiving therapy. It's, it's really hard to fill those spots because I think consumers feel like there, there is, I'm just going to say it because I'm frank, but there's stigma around children that have diagnoses or uh-huh. disabilities yes. or whatever. My kid doesn't have that. My kid is normal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're going to pick up bad behaviors if they go there, but, but slowly we've kind of, you know, we've had kids who have been, it, it started because we had kids who were in the program that we were saying to the family, like they don't, we don't think they really need OT anymore. They've met their goals. They're doing great. Like, you know, there's, there's not, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say they need to continue. And they were like, well, can we keep coming, but not pay for OT? We were like, (laughs) okay, let's make a service. So, so that's kind of been part of our model now. Um, So, so it's a really nice like step down, you know, if, if a kid doesn't doesn't need need full OT services, but they can still get the benefit of the group. Yeah. Well, so that's, think, a, that's what yeah. we tend to do. We transition kids into that, uh-huh. into that pay because they cost less because we're not doing, you know, assessment and progress reporting and all the documentation on goals. And it's the peer They're just playmates showing up are and really, participating basically. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And if families, you know, if families ask for OT consult, then we, we're like, well, it, it's not an OT service. We can't, we can't ethically provide OT services for a child that we have not done the OT assessment on or the process, you know, like the process of assessment and goal writing and all of that. So, um, but generally those, those kids are kids that we've had in our groups that are ready to kind of step into a different role or not have us tracking goals on them. So, yeah. Well, I just like the entire idea, you know, I work with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, supporting them out in the community. And there's just so much benefit for the folks, the individuals themselves who might have a, a disability interacting mm-hmm. with, you know, for lack of a better word, typical developers and that kind of thing yeah. from a, like a social skills learning standpoint, you know, you take uh, one of my partners, my business partner always says, it's like, think about self-contained classrooms, even like you take a kid that has yeah. crummy social skills 
and you put yep. them in a room full of other kids that have crummy social skills. And then you wonder why at the end of the year, they all have crummy social skills, you know, like yeah. there's, there's benefits to exposing kids, you know, whether typical or with a disability to folks across the, the developmental spectrum, if you would, from, from yeah. all standpoints, you know? Yeah. So I love that idea. So, um, okay. So where we, we were talking about, where we were, you're, you're doing these groups. We talked about the assessments that you do. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about kind of, we had touched around this a little bit, but your, your specific method, which is a Contigo okay. method. So talk about yep. what each of those three chunks are for us. Yeah, so the first one is connection, and that refers to the fact that we are a group. Like we're, yes. we're offering our services in the context of other people because relationships human relationships are so foundational to everything about being a human <laughs> and yes, so exactly We're social um, even yeah i ideally even when we do because we do do some individual services but ideally even when we do that we're encouraging parents to be present or siblings or a friend to come with them or something so that it makes it really playful for the children um, and it, it also refers to connection to nature as being very important for our health and well-being as humans as well. So connection to others and connection to nature is is what the connection piece stands for. Uh, The transformation um, is really referring to that that need for us as therapists to use evidence-based practice um, as best we can. Now, I, I know that sometimes innovative ways of practicing are not necessarily supported by a ton of evidence when they first come out. And sometimes early adopters are some of the most effective therapists, right? Exactly. Because they're willing to think outside the box. Um, but but with, with what we do in our groups, I really wanted to highlight the idea that we as therapists should be continually learning and growing, continually knowing what evidence is saying about yeah, what's coming out, what's being published regularly. Yes. Yeah. What is evidence saying about the, the most effective ways to support coordination, confidence, caring, and calmness in children? Um, so that's, that's a lot of what is um, in the training that I offer too in the Contigo approach. Like we, I offer a lot of resources to support those skills, like research and specific ways that are clearly supported by research that you can support those different areas with children yeah 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 it's hard i imagine you kind of mentioned it too like innovators being kind of on the cutting edge part of my i'm not going to say i have a problem with higher education but the idea of evidence-based practice is great especially the way it sounds like we're going to do things that are only proved by evidence but the reality is like we're teaching things at the university that are in you know future directions or like uh, emerging practice areas yep. that are, they're emerging practice areas now because the research is just coming out, but people have been doing it for years and been having success, right? Right. So how do, right. you, how do you take that understanding that, okay, what we're, what we're seeing in the literature is lagging by you know, a few years because it takes time to do a study and to get everything. And so how do we take that information knowing that, that the evidence is already lagging and then maybe hearing about this new nature-based technique so do you, do you right. filter things through and how do you do that? Oh, that's a big question. I'm so there with you. Like that is such a good point that like research is behind, right? Because by the time we get research to actually implement it in practice, it's already been effective for years on end. Uh-huh. I think this is where good clinical reasoning and also using theory, people are going to hate hearing me say this, but like Not using the theory... theory <laughs> To, to help inform how you think about things. So if you, if you have a guiding theory that you use to guide your practice, you have a, a, a way, it, it guides your thinking. It helps you not, it helps you organize your thinking in a way that can help you be more effective providing services for your clients, right? So, um, if you have that theory in mind, if you're using a theory to inform your, your practice, then you can take research that is out there and make new connections and start doing things that are different. Um, 
maybe even before the research is there. It's like, I don't know, when you talk about nature and children, I'm like, I don't really need nature, like research to tell me that <laughs> that, that works, like right? Being outside, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of a lot of innovation, I think, is like you need to you need to know the evidence, but also some of it is just taking a risk and trying things, and seeing what happens, and taking your own notes take your own notes, like being a reflective practitioner. This is something I have written into the Contigo approach, like, which I never finished explaining. I'm just not realizing, but oh well. We'll get to the last piece. But I really, really want to say this one thing. So, so reflective practice is so important. It helps you be a better therapist. It helps you be more evidence-based because you can use your own evidence. I think when we say evidence-based, it doesn't just mean research, right? Exactly. Yeah. You can take your own notes. What went well? What went wrong? What am I going to do differently next time? Those are the three reflective practice questions. I like pound them into all of our students, all of our, I mean, every time I teach, that's what I'm telling people to do, that reflection. Keep your journal, write down what went well, what went wrong, what's, what you're going to do differently next time. Reread that stuff. That's evidence-based practice. That's looking at what you said you were going to do, changing something, modifying as you go, and using clinical reasoning to inform as you go forward. So I think remembering that evidence-based practice maybe doesn't just mean it doesn't rest on the, the research yeah yeah it means using good clinical reasoning based on your own experiences as well so um yeah sorry that was a meandering answer to the no i i love question, it that's but, great i try to tell that to students and clients all the time you know like there's three stools yeah. to the evidence-based practice it doesn't all have to come out of academia so all right we yeah. talked about the connection we talked about transformation and now we're at the last piece Yes. So in the great outdoors is the ego part. (laughs) Um, So, so this, this refers to that idea when I, when you first asked me the question, like, what is nature-based therapy in this model? What it's referring to is that we are providing these therapy services in a relatively wild nature setting, an uncultivated nature setting as most, as much as possible. Um, A lot of the things we do could be done on a school playground with some trees and a dirt area, you know, like, like some type of nature. Yeah, you're not tethered to, be. to being in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's really based on the idea this, this in the great outdoors part of the Contigo approach is based on the um, attention restoration theory, which it, I mean, it is, there's so much literature on this. It has been cited thousands of times since the eighties when it was, when it was proposed, but basically attention restoration theory proposes that we have two different attention systems essentially in our brain. And this highly correlates with, with neurological findings based Uh on MRI studies, but we have directed attention, which is like our executive function, cognitive energy. You got to focus on something and filter out everything else and do deep work. Right. And that directed attention, as we all know, is limited. It's deplete depleted very easily you know, when you're yeah. doing hard cognitive work. Exactly. I always yeah. say like taxes, think about doing your taxes. Unless you're an accountant, everybody can relate to like yeah. the mental energy just, it takes. You turn your head to the side and your brain oozes out, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're just exhausted, right? And your, your directed attention can be really easily depleted. And then the other, the other type of attention we have is fascination. It's, it's naturally elicited attention And attention restoration theory would propose that nature is the best space in which to restore our directed attention because nature naturally elicits fascination so often. You see a butterfly, you see a wild animal, you you just see beautiful flowers or trees or the sky or rain, clouds, like a thunderstorm rolling in. I mean, just the, the beauty that we see when we're out in nature, almost no matter what kind of nature, it can also be terrifying too. And that gets yeah. into fight or flight and we won't go there in this yeah. conversation. But, we don't want to do that, but like, right? Right, right. But in general, attention restoration theory was proposed in the early 80s or, or late 70s. Um, Stephen and Rachel Kaplan, they, they are just amazing researchers. Anything they write is about, you know, aligned with this topic essentially. But but it's been researched over and over and over. Um, and that is the, the foundational theory about why I believe that our services for children are best provided in an environment that is, allows them to feel away. So, because when you see a building and you see cars and you see, you know, 
even bathrooms, even like structures that are like built structures, um, it, it reminds you of daily life, right? But when you're away in the woods and you don't really see anything that's built, you're, you're in a whole different setting. You're in a whole different sensory experience. You're, you're connected to nature in that way. You're kind of one with nature and you're not reminded of like the human built world. Um, another thing that really relates to children that I want to mention is Roger Hart's work. So he's another researcher from the seventies. Like all this stuff is old people. None of this is new. People have been doing this since while. I was born <laughs> 44 years ago. Uh, but, um, <laughs> Basically, Roger Hart's work is so interesting because he studied um, children's experiences outdoors, and he's written a lot of books on this topic too. But one of one of the things he researched was like the narrowed experience of children's ability to roam from home. So, like in the seventies, kids he did research where he actually tracked how far kids go from their house, right? Like, so they're oh, I'm they're sure in the seventies, three like miles, miles yeah. you know, like. Yeah, totally. I rode my bike all over my neighborhood when I was young. And now I'm like, I don't know that I would let my 10 year old ride his bike as far as I did, you know? Um, and there's a lot of reasons for this, which we won't go into, but basically he found that, that it had shrunk over the years. Like kids are staying way closer to home than, than they are able to explore out. And one of the comments he made in an article that totally stuck with me is that the built environment for children announces the presence of adults. It's oh, like wow, yeah. adults have been here. We built this bathroom. We uh -huh. built this parking lot. We built this building. We built this playground for you. You know, and, and nature doesn't have that. Nature's just like out there. Like no adults have messed with this space. And that's one of my favorite things to do in therapy is to tell the kids like, you know, we're going to build a fort and no adults are allowed in this fort just you guys, <laughs> only kids can go in. I'm not even allowed in there, you know, like, so, cause it's like an experience. They don't have a lot in, in this world nowadays. They don't get to go alone anywhere. Really. Poor, so yeah. yeah, yeah. It's an important thing for their development too. It's so important. Well, and you think about like kids developing confidence and I, I mentioned it earlier, like a sense of mastery or something like that. Like how important yeah. is that? You know, we have a, a lease that we go hunting on it's like I don't know a couple hundred acres or whatever and I took my five-year-old out there this past year uh, my five-year-old my three-year-old and they were kind of timid at first I got them out I said all right we're gonna go walk around the woods you know I didn't even bring a gun yeah. we were just walking and by the end of that trip I mean they were oh did you see me and I was climbing over that hill and that log was there yeah. and I jumped right over it and I was like yeah yep. bud, you're doing awesome yeah you know, and they were just so, so much more confident at the end of even like a 30 minute walk in the woods you know yeah you see it, it that reminds me of a of a really meaningful moment that a parent made a comment I think I actually put it on the website after I asked her if I could if I could use it because she said she said something to the effect of like at a group one day when, when they were arriving, she was recalling that they went on a camping trip. Their family had just gone on a camping trip the previous week or something uh -huh. with his class. And she said he was exploring with other kids and he jumped off of a boulder, like from a foot above the ground by himself, no one telling him to do it. And she was like, to other parents that, I mean, it'll make me cry. Seriously. She's like, to other parents, that's like a small thing. And to me, it was huge. It was huge. And I, that's why we do this, you know, like, because nature offers that, like, like providing this for children, like it transfers into their daily life. When we hear stories like that from families, uh -huh. that is like, that's what makes us like, this is why we do this. Right. Yeah. You're making so, tangible impacts on, on clients' lives. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was a good story. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, the idea of um, what you called it, attentional restoration, almost seems like it flows with, have you read Daniel Kahneman's uh, book, Thinking Fast and Slow, like type one, type it, two thinking and all that? It's on my list, but yes, it totally relates to that. It is so on my list. That is a book that I'm like, I have a long list of after the PhD is done, that <laughs> is on my list. Exactly. <laughs> Seriously. There's some, um, his books are pretty long, but I mean, it was a great read, but it, it, it's funny how you said, you know, this stuff has been going on forever. And the more and more I feel like we learn about just psychology and the brain and the way we develop, like yes. a lot of it is intertwined, you know? 
like this type one, type two thinking correlates very well with this intent, uh, attentional restoration and how all of it's kind of blending yes. together, right? Yeah. I think it's absolutely super fascinating. And, and just to tie in theory some more and bore your audience. No, I'm just kidding. I'll make it fun. <laughs> so, so that's one of the reasons that I love occupational adaptation theory, because part of that theory is the idea of primary and secondary energy. So, uh -huh. and you can think of it like primary and secondary attention really, because it's what our brain is thinking of this idea that, that humans have the primary energy that we spend is like the, where we're working really hard to solve a problem or it just feels like frustrating or we feel ourselves starting to like just hit a wall. Right. And OA theory would literally say like, at that point you need to let it, they say, if you're, if you're an OA therapist, the big thing is like, Oh, let it, let it sit on secondary for a little bit. You know, like yeah. it's basically like use your secondary energy because how many of us can relate to the idea of like, you can't think of a solution to a problem and then when you're falling asleep at night or you're in the shower yeah. or you're driving and just no noise you put is on, on the back or burner hit, for a little bit and it hits you put it on the back burner so that secondary energy is like the back burner of your brain where the the idea in OA theory is that the work you did thinking about it the work you did cognitively to kind of try to solve the problem from a cognitive stance is still there in your brain but that when we can move to that, like throwing it on the back burner, it, it, lets the, it lets the creative ideas kind of percolate to the surface. And I, I love that that's part of the theory. Because I don't know any other OT, OT theory that actually talks about that concept, you uh -huh. know, that how we need to manage our energy to effectively participate in occupations in daily life. So that's, you know, my little, my little yeah. plug for OA. Well, I love it. <laughs> totally grounded in, in research too. Uh, there's a book called Peak yep. Performance where they talk about that. Like if you really are burning out on something, the research shows, you know, 45 minutes, 45 to 90 minutes is like how much you should be spending like focused concentration on yep. something before you take a break. And oftentimes in that break, you're like, oh, it, that's what it was or whatever. So. Yes, exactly. And how many of us work for 90 minutes and then just keep pushing through to try to uh -huh. get it done and we're wasting we're wasting energy really because we can't calories really in our brain. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. It does take energy. It's real. Yep. Awesome. Well, we've been at this for a while, Laura, thanks so much for being on the show. What I really want to ask is like, if you could just think of a couple big takeaways for an audience, like what would be two, one or two big points that you would want them to walk away from when they think about nature-based therapy? Oh, I would want them just to take the risk and try it. Venture into it. You know, don't don't be scared. It's it's not rocket science. You can do what you do as a therapist outdoors and look at how it changes how you practice. That's what I would say. To like just try it and then do that ref reflective practice afterwards and and get started doing it. That that's my my okay. main. You don't need theory, you don't need like big old trainings. I mean, I offer training, but you know, <laughs> but like, you don't, you don't need that just to get started and to start noticing it yourself. And that, I guess that would lead into the second thing I would say, which is, I really think that the best way to be a better nature-based therapist is to connect with nature yourself. Notice it. Like, just in your neighborhood, notice small little pieces of nature, notice the birds, notice the squirrels in your yard or along the fence, notice the sky, notice the clouds, notice trees, look at stuff and notice it. And, and I think just that, um, you'll, you'll start to notice in your daily life when you notice nature more, it has a really calming effect on the nervous system. And, yeah. and we can offer that to our clients too. Yeah. Almost modeling it for them. There's a, a great yeah, book called absolutely. Outside Lies Magic. Have you read it? No, another book to add. What's it called? Yeah, Outside it's called Outside Lies, Lies Magic? Magic, but it, it's all about um, cultivating like an acute observation or observedness in the world. It's, it's pretty cool. So he talks about like, even oh. out in your backyard, you can, you know, observe the sunlight beaming through the trees and all that. It's a good read. Oh, this is going to be a before PhD done book. Like I'm, I'm going to get this book today. <laughs> that is, that sounds, that sounds fabulous. I will love it. Yeah. Glad I could help. So I <laughs> can't wait. That can't wait for a year and a half. Okay. I got to read that before. <laughs> yeah. Good luck on that uh, PhD, by the way. Yeah. Where can people find you? If they want to learn more. 
Oh, are you ready? I'm in too many places. Okay. All of the places. Uh, yeah. I'm going to focus on the, I, I'm not in all the places, but I'm in a lot of places on the two platforms that I'm on. Um, so I would say that if you're, if you're interested in nature-based therapy, um, the best place to get like free information and to be part of a group where I hang out a lot is the Therapy in the Great Outdoors Nature-Based Therapist group on Facebook, which I moderate. So, or my business, I guess it's connected to my business page, but I moderate the group. I'm in there. Um, and that is, that is an interdisciplinary group of therapists that are interested in pediatric nature-based practice. We have some adult therapists in there too, I think. Um, and there, there are lots of other Facebook groups too that people can join, but I'm, I'm primarily in that therapy in the great outdoors one. Um, and then if you want to know more about my business and kind of see, you know, a little behind the scenes of the business, there's a blog and we're on social media too. It's outdoorkidsot.com. On Instagram, it's at outdoorkidsot for the business. My personal Instagram slash business consulting Instagram is at Laura Park Fig because no one could spell Figueroa, so. Yeah, even if they tried, right? And park and fig are nature, so there you go, park and fig. I kind of like it. It's weird sounding, but I like it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, Rafi, this was like my highlight of my day, my pleasure, the things I love to talk about, and you're great too. And thank you, <laughs> thank you. for having yeah. me. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Laura about nature-based therapy and how clinicians can integrate or leverage or, as she says, partner with nature to help bring about the outcomes that we ultimately want for our patients and clients. I think just going back and listening to the interviews I'm preparing this, one of the topic areas that I think bears more um, more reading and thinking and discussion is the entire idea of evidence-based practice. We kind of talked about it a little bit in the middle there about how when we talk about innovating in the healthcare space and we talk about still at the same time being uh, evidence-based practitioners, oftentimes we're, we're stuck thinking about or we end up solely thinking about the academic or the research or the literature aspect of evidence-based practice. But as Laura pointed out, and as we mentioned back and forth a few times, that there are three stool or three, three legs to the stool of evidence-based practice. One of them happens to be research, but the other two are patient experience and values and then clinical experience of that clinician's clinical reasoning and judgment. And if you take the step to become a reflective practitioner, if you're constantly writing down, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, what am I going to have to change for next time? And you, you do that as a matter of habit after every session or every day at practice, over time, your clinical reasoning and your clinical skills and the knowledge and experience you develop will in and of itself lead to a form of evidence-based practice. You know, clinical expertise, again, is one of those pillars or one of the legs of the stool for evidence-based practice. So I thought that was pretty interesting that we talked about it there. And I, I think in the future, we're going to try to have somebody on to talk specifically about evidence-based practice and how do we reconcile being innovative in the healthcare space with also following an evidence-based model or trying to do things that are grounded and supported in research and theory because we we want to innovate we want to be doing you know, cutting edge or whatever we want to be able to bring the newest and and most readily available resources and techniques to our to our practice and to our clients and we want to do it in a way that is still within the bounds of being grounded in what we know to be true and what we know works. So that's probably a topic for another day. If you like the show, it would mean a lot if you headed over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. It helps people find the show, helps people listen to the episodes and you know see what we're all about here. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.betteroutcomes.show 
There you can sign up for our email list. You'll get new episodes delivered to your inbox every time we release them. We release new interviews every other week on Wednesday. And then every now and then you get a bonus episode whenever those, whenever I get around to doing one. Um, and at that, uh, at that website, betteroutcomes.show, you can also browse through all of our previous episodes, all the links to connect with our guests and reach out to them if you have questions about any of the topics that they discuss. So until the next episode, guys, be safe, be healthy. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.